0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Lucas Pfeiffer, one of the coolest people whom I met while I worked at the University of Washington. Although we were from different departments, Lucas is a PhD student in Earth and Space Sciences, and I was a postdoc in astronomy, we were united through UW's world-famous astrobiology program, a multidisciplinary consortium of professors, postdocs, and students from eight different departments, bringing together people interested in understanding life's origins, distribution, and fate in the universe. I have really fond memories of discussing the latest scientific papers with Lucas and others over beer and snacks at UW Astrobiology's journal club, Mass Extrinction. That's spelled with a drink in the middle of extrinction. <laughs> anyway, Lucas is an expert on Saturn's moon Enceladus, which is commonly thought to be one of the best places to seek out new life within our solar system, thanks to its subsurface ocean sandwiched between layers of rock and ice. Enceladus's geysers, which spray material out into space, were sampled by NASA's Cassini orbiter during that probe's 13-year tour of the Saturnian system. Now, in a recently published paper, Lucas has re-examined the chemistry of Enceladus's plumes using a brand new computer model to understand the habitability of that icy moon's ocean. So, without further ado, let's go find out what he's discovered. Lucas Pfeiffer, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thanks so much. Super happy to be here. Before we dive into our science content for today, I want to begin by asking about your relationship to Star Trek. I know you've been watching a bit of Discovery lately, right?
1: Yeah, it's been sort of my re-entry back to, to Star Trek. So I am all caught up on Discovery now. But when I was younger, I watched a bit of The Next Generation with my dad. Like It was actually, one I think, one of the first shows that we like watched together and... Uh, I remember like staying up, it's like the latest I could stay up was to to watch Star Trek like every Friday <laughs> night, uh, like 9 p.m. I, I really enjoyed it at the time, but I kind of like fell off of Star Trek for a while. And so it's been fun to, to get back into it. So I'm, I'm actually rewatching TNG now uh, from the beginning to try and hit all the episodes that I probably missed and whatever weird rerun schedule they were doing.
0: Yeah, that's so amazing. I didn't know that. I also started watching Star Trek by watching The Next Generation with my dad. And then oh, yeah. I guess I, I started watching Star Trek Voyager next as I was growing up. But I, I don't think it's your fault for falling off of Star Trek, because Star Trek kind of fell off on you right. <laughs> in the yeah. 2000s and through, I guess, until the beginning of Discovery 2017. So from 2005 to 2017, there's just no Star Trek series at all. You know, But it's really cool that you're going back and rewatching TNG after all of these years or decades actually, a number of people have actually mentioned that to me, that either because of the pandemic and they were trying to figure out what to do at home or they're just like trying to relive some childhood memories that they've gone back and started re-watching specifically Star Trek TNG. So huh. I'm actually curious about how you think about it all of these years later. Are are you enjoying it? Are there certain things that you like from a scientific point of view?
1: Oh yeah. I am enjoying it a lot. It's very like It's very comforting and uh, it's hard to describe exactly why part of it for sure is the nostalgia, but it's also just like kind of a cozy show to watch, even when they're in these dire situations. I don't know. Maybe it's just the carpeted floors. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've got to say those carpeted floors I mean, I actually really miss them. I, I'm not sure why all of the new ships that we see, you know, Discovery and all these other other things, they don't have carpeted floors because carpets are just so nice to yeah. walk on and see.
1: <laughs> it's too hard to clean. The, you guess. know.
0: <laughs> um. Did you want to say anything else about TNG? Sorry, I. Interrupted.
1: Oh no. Yeah. I, I. I. Yeah. I've been really enjoying it. I like. I love all the science episodes, but also just like the weird like. Like the Q episodes, like Deja Q, I think was one of the, the episodes I watched recently, yeah. where Q like doesn't have any of his powers. It's just like so mm-hmm. fun. Love those kind of like more surreal episodes too.
0: yeah i actually really love deja q because it's a fun exploration of q and what happens to him when he loses his powers and becomes human but it's also got a great alien in it the calamarain, these like plasma life forms that they have to save q from oh Um, yeah yeah and i thought that was a really cool sci-fi example of like life completely as we don't know it you know people often talk about like silicon-based life forms could you have a life form just made out of plasma Probably not, but you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's so surprising to see from this early show how like ahead of its time it was in thinking about like at some point Picard, I think, is describing the difference between I'm not sure if he's talking about data or not, but he's talking about like how basically we are all just organic machines too. And I just like love that kind of perspective. You know, life can can be made up of all different kinds of machinery. It doesn't have to be it can be organic, it can be synthetic, it can be whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that scene was particular uh, to Data when he was trying to defend Data, right, on Mm. on trial. Data Data was losing his his human rights. (laughs) (laughs) And that scene where Picard says that we are machines too, just machines of a different kind, really Mm -hmm. stuck with me for many years. And then I remember learning when I was studying astrobiology about all of the amazing molecular machines that are at work every second of every day in our bodies to like turn out ATP or replicate our DNA and how they're literally like machines that have turnstiles or that like transform ATP into some other action, uh, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. So you've been watching all of Discovery, you've caught up through season four. Um, what do you think of this show?
1: Oh yeah, really enjoying it. Especially like the latest seasons have been awesome. The whole arc with uh, the DMA and, and the 10C, I thought was so cool, like starting from just like trying to understand this strange sort of astrophysical phenomena. And then it transitions into this awesome, like first contact slash Medi, like interacting with, with intelligent life and, and learning their language and all the astro linguistics at the end it's such a cool arc.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you liked that because I was just jumping up and down watching this. You know, it's cool enough to get an astrophysical phenomenon like the DMA essentially being the villain of the season. You know, it's like not some bad person, but actually like a, a scientific mystery that they have to solve. And then for that astrophysical phenomenon to suddenly have this like amazing astrobiological twist at mm-hmm. the very end. Oh, that was so cool to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Lucas, we are here today to talk about Enceladus, which is the subject of your PhD thesis and the research that you are doing that is ongoing in your research portfolio. You know, unfortunately, Enceladus, this small moon of Saturn, hasn't really had a major role in Star Trek yet, but we did catch a tiny glimpse of it in the opening scene of Star Trek Discovery's second season. And this scene utilizes some real-life images captured by NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which was in orbit of Saturn and made many flybys of its moons, including Enceladus. Uh, And this scene, which uses that amazing footage, is overlain with a beautiful monologue by Commander Michael Burnham. So I thought we'd first just take a look at that scene and then talk a little bit about it. Space,
1: the final frontier, above us, around us, within us, we have always looked to the stars to discover
0: who we are. So, Lucas, as a planetary scientist who studies Enceladus specifically, what emotions does that scene elicit in you?
1: The first time, I was, like, so blown away, and, like, it definitely made me tear up. Um, It was, like, such a heartwarming and, like, overwhelming moment. Um, Like, the Cassini images are just so incredible. Like, Cassini did so much beyond just take these images, but just on their own. Everything that was brought back from that mission to Saturn and its moons like those images are probably like 40 percent of why I'm doing planetary science at all like they're such a huge inspiration I think it's so cool to see that like the writers of Star Trek saw the same like scientific and inspirational and artistic value in those images and and wanted to like bring them back and like show show the Star Trek audience share that with them yeah I, I also just love the implication that like we know that the Cassini mission was hugely monumental in real Earth history and humanity's understanding of our solar system. And I love the implication that like it is also just as monumental in this sort of alternative Star Trek timeline, and that it is a, kind of a stepping stone to this Star Trek future.
0: I completely agree, and had the same exact reaction as you when i watched it for the first time it was just like tears and (laughs) oh my god is this real there's cassini images in star trek um because like you watching the cassini mission unfold all of the discoveries that it made really helped me become a planetary scientist both in terms of being an inspiration but also like actually Enabling my PhD thesis, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> like I'm just as so famous with you, right? Because yeah, yeah. up until now, Cassini is the only spacecraft that has really taken data about Enceladus, as I'm sure you'll tell us all about. Mm-hmm. For my PhD, I studied Titan as a chapter, and right. if it weren't for Cassini, we wouldn't know what kinds of molecules were being formed in Titan's atmosphere. So it was it was just a magical experience, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So. Listeners of this podcast will be familiar with another icy moon in the outer solar system, Europa, which is actually a moon of Jupiter, so not Saturn, but it shares some similarities to Saturn's moon Enceladus. And the reason why our listeners are very well versed in Europa science is because we ran a mini series called Europa Watch, which was inspired by Star Trek Picard's second season which gave us the Europa mission, uh, a fictional 21st century crewed mission to Jupiter's moon Europa as part of the story arc of that season. So, Lucas, you study Enceladus, which is, as I said, kind of like Europa, but also not exactly Europa. Can you tell us how Enceladus is both similar to and different from Europa?
1: So yeah, Europa and Enceladus—they are both these icy moons. They have these thick outer shells of ice, and those shells are like 10 to 20 miles thick over most of the surfaces. Uh, but underneath these thick shells of ice, they each have uh, liquid oceans of water. Europa is also a bit bigger. I think Europa is about size of—it's it's right about the size of our moon. Um, but Enceladus is quite a lot smaller. It's only. About 300 miles across, so about six times smaller than that. But what, what makes Enceladus really unique is that there are these eruptions coming out from the surface, and we didn't really know that these eruptions existed until the Cassini mission was was flying around Enceladus and and sort of saw these. And the scientists directing that mission decided it was it was important to take a closer look at those. And basically, there are these huge jets or or eruptions or what we call plumes coming out from the surface out of these deep and extended fissures in the surface of Enceladus. These eruptions are thought to represent basically material that's coming from that ocean. It's being transported up to the surface and beyond the surface out into space where spacecraft like Cassini can fly through them and measure them. And Cassini actually did that, measured its composition. So thanks to that information, we have a, a pretty good idea not only that these eruptions are coming from the ocean because they've got little bits of little ice grains with salt in them, which seem to represent little frozen droplets of salty like ocean spray from from below the surface. But we also so we know what kind of chemicals are in these these plumes, and we can use that to figure out what's going on in the ocean, like what gases are in the ocean, uh, what the salts are there and what sort of organic molecules might be there and maybe potentially uh, what life could be there.
0: Would you say basically because of these plumes, Enceladus's ocean is the ocean in the solar system we know the most about besides Earth's?
1: I think so. Yeah. And I, Oh, and I should say, there's a possibility that there are plumes on Europa as well, but there's not as hard confirmation yet. uh, And we certainly don't have as nice samples as, as we do from the Cassini mission. So yes, definitely right now that is the case.
0: Really cool. So you published a study in the Planetary Science Journal very recently, and we'll link to that paper for our listeners in case they want to look at it in more depth. And this paper is about the composition of Enceladus's plumes and what the plume material can tell us about the nature of the ocean. So as you said, these plumes, their source of material is that ocean underneath that ice crust. So why is there not a one-to-one match between the plume material that Cassini can gobble up and analyze Mm. and the ocean material itself?
1: Yeah, so yeah, we can still learn a lot like in terms of just what is in that ocean. But yeah, there's this problem that it's not exactly one-to-one in terms of how much of those chemicals that we see in the plume how much of those are actually in the ocean, the concentrations that they're at. Um, So that's because we're not seeing the ocean itself, we're seeing the aftermath of this complex eruption process. And some things erupt easily, and other things get left behind. So some papers have looked at that previously, in particular how water vapor is affected during eruption. So, So the bulk of the plumes is made up of water vapor. It's like the main component there. But as these plumes erupt upwards towards the surface through these kind of icy conduits. It's getting colder and colder towards the surface as it gets to the vacuum of space. So water vapor will tend to freeze out onto the walls of that conduit. So you're losing water vapor over that process. But other gases that are also in the plumes, like say carbon dioxide and methane, it doesn't get cold enough for them to freeze out. So they can carry on totally unaffected. As a result, if you look at the plume where Cassini measured it, you would find very different ratios in terms of gas to water vapor than if you looked at the plume down at the beginning of its sort of formation at the bottom of the fissure.
0: So let me see if I can recap that for my own understanding. Basically, as the plume material travels through the crevasse in Enceladus's ice shell to reach outer space, some of that material will freeze out and not be retained as part of the plume
1: yeah yeah and it's kind of the same process as when you sometimes get ice building up in a freezer that's too cold so there's some amount of moisture in the air that's just water vapor Uh, and if the walls of your if your freezer is set way too cold uh then then the walls of the freezer get so cold that basically water vapor turns into ice and, and crystallizes onto the sides of the freezer so
0: similar process That's a great analogy. I can definitely relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so because it's the water vapor that is freezing out and getting stuck to the sides of the crevasse, that means that the relative concentration of these gases will go up.
1: Yes. Yes. Sort of the background water vapor has been lowered. So the, the stuff that was left unaffected, like the carbon dioxide, it appears more prominent. But there's also this additional piece that happens even before that. So we're thinking about gases as they're actually exiting the ocean so we think that these plumes are, are forming basically as a sliver of ocean is sort of being exposed to the vacuum of space as a result of these cracks in the surface so because there's no atmosphere around Enceladus it's too small to hold on to an atmosphere or not massive enough to hold on to an atmosphere you're really just exposing that water to the vacuum of space. So that's why water is evaporating, maybe even boiling. And other gases will likewise come out of the ocean, kind of like cracking up, open a, a, a can of soda or beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have carbon dioxide bubbles coming out, you could have various gases coming out in, in quite a similar way. But as that transition happens, not all gases make that transition at the same rate. So if you were to look at say the ratio of gas is just above the ocean, it could be quite different from the ratio in the ocean too. So that's a key part of our paper is exploring that process and different possible mechanisms for getting the gas out of the ocean, whether it's just out of the surface or through bubbles or out of those little ocean spray droplets.
0: I'm just imagining some giant cosmozoan, you know, spacefaring life form, coming up, picking up Enceladus, <laughs> cracking it open like a, a can of beer and chugging it. <laughs> but I guess that's essentially what's happening there. It's got a crack and <laughs> there's, there's this gas from the internal material uh, coming out. <laughs> Yeah. So so in order to figure out, okay, so Cassini made this measurement, what does that actually mean about the internal chemical state of the ocean? You've got to take into account all of these different physical processes that you've just laid out for us and build a model of what's happening so that you can then deduce what the ocean is like. So tell me about this model. How does it work? And what does it tell you about the nature of Enceladus's ocean?
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. It's like we're making a a computer model of of all these processes and and considering sort of the dynamics of water vapor and and how energy and mass is conserved, but how the plume can accelerate as it's moving upward through the fissure, um, because it's driven by this pressure difference as it's sort of getting sucked out into the vacuum space. But our, our main result is, is essentially that there should be quite a lot of gas in the ocean. So a lot of like carbon dioxide and methane, also hydrogen gas and ammonia gas as well. And there are more gases or higher concentration of these gases than has previously been estimated in other papers. So it could really be quite bubbly, like as bubbly as a soda. And, and some, some authors have used the term soda ocean to describe Enceladus' ocean in the past. So it really seems even more appropriate, we think. Yeah, so we, we think there should be a lot of ammonium around as well. So window cleanery sort of composition, maybe. Uh, maybe not, not as concentrated, um, <laughs> but that's where you see ammonium popping up just in your everyday life. And we can also estimate the pH of the ocean. So in other words, sort of the acidity of that ocean. And our main result there is that it it seems like it could be a little bit closer to the pH of Earth's oceans than was previously thought. So some previous estimates had put it maybe a little bit more alkaline, like closer up towards something like bleach or something. Uh, So yeah, it could be a little bit closer to neutral, a little bit more Earth-like than previously thought.
0: So that sounds pretty good for life. I know a lot of Earth's ocean is pretty close to neutral, as you said, So, and, and life thrives in Earth's oceans. What do your findings mean for the habitability of Enceladus? Do you think that this makes Enceladus a promising environment for life, or does this kind of chemical composition preclude a certain kind of life from existing?
1: Generally, I think all these facts are... Uh... be good um so so more more gases around that's useful for life because gases can be a source of energy for life and there's a particular form of life that's been hypothesized for Enceladus so little microbes called methanogens that create methane they can do that by taking in a couple of gases carbon dioxide and hydrogen and since both carbon dioxide and hydrogen those are the inputs to that process. Those were both measured in the plumes and methane was also measured in the plumes. Um, So you've got sort of the ingredients and the end product were all measured. Um, And they're in, we think that they're in the right proportions that it'd be energetically favorable for microbes to actually do this reaction. And and people have looked at this in the past. That isn't a new result from our paper, but with our updated concentrations, we're basically finding that it's still a good source of energy for, for this type of life. Maybe a bigger difference than compared to previous papers is the fact that we find so much ammonium around. So ammonium is toxic at some levels uh, at high concentrations to terrestrial life. But if we're imagining a hypothetical Enceladian biochemistry, you know, there's no reason it couldn't be adapted to higher concentrations. Also, ammonium is a really useful source of nitrogen, the element nitrogen, which is a a key nutrient in Earth-like life. So it's actually, I think, potentially more helpful than harmful. And then the pH that you mentioned, it being closer to Earth's oceans it's definitely a positive, I think, because terrestrial life, you tend to have more species diversity at these closer to neutral pH. I think that similarity in pH also just allows for more comparison between Earth's oceans and Enceladus's oceans. So, it opens more doors for using Earth environments as analogues for for Enceladus environments and and in our study and trying to understand this this faraway moon uh, just by using the oceans on our door.
0: Wow. What exciting discoveries and what an important paper this is. Congrats on the publication of it, Lucas. This is really astounding. I remember last year we were discussing another exciting paper which claimed that the methane that Cassini had detected in Enceladus's plumes could be evidence for life, specifically those methanogens that you were just referencing. So do you think your findings here of this analysis of what's going on deep within Enceladus's ocean add weight to this claim of methane as a sign of life on Enceladus, or does it dampen it?
1: Yeah, I think we're kind of pushing back against that paper a little bit. So, and I I think that was an awesome paper, a really super interesting idea, and and really well executed overall. Really enjoyed reading that in our our journal club. So, I guess to summarize the finding of that paper, they're basically seeing that there's all this methane that is leaving Enceladus via these eruptions, and then they They said, well, okay, that's a lot of methane coming out. What could plausibly be making that methane? Uh, And then they did this very thorough modeling study of how geological sources of methane could work on Enceladus and basically found that it's difficult to, it'd be difficult to explain all that methane coming out if it was only being produced by these non living geological processes. So they say that methane is most likely being created by, or it would be more likely to be created by biology. Um, But they do add this important caveat that an alternative is that this methane could be primordial. In other words, leftover from when Enceladus formed. And people think that Enceladus probably formed from these little icy objects or planetesimals that had a similar composition to comets and comets have a lot of methane in them in the form of methane ice. So Enceladus could have gotten its methane in this way during formation without the need for biology. And our results seem to sort of push towards that alternative because uh, we show that, while there is a lot of methane in the ocean, there actually seems to be way less than what you would expect from a comet-like composition. So if anything, we don't necessarily need an explanation for what's making the methane today, but uh, more importantly, we should figure out where has all that methane gone? Why is there less than we expect from a comet-like composition?
0: This is blowing my mind, and it really speaks to why planetary context and understanding that context is so key to the search for life elsewhere, because we've got this molecule methane that is often associated with life. It is created in copious amounts here on Earth by these microbes that, for instance, live inside of cow guts and rice fields Mm. and things like that. Um, and so when you see methane on another world, your interest is peaked because, oh, yeah. that we know life can create that. But what you're telling me here is that the mystery on Enceladus is not what is making the methane, but where is all the methane gone? There's like a missing methane problem on Enceladus because it should have been born with a ton of just primordial methane and started out with a lot of that that we no longer see. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it.
0: yeah. Wow. okay. Got to ask a follow-up here. Do you think that there's any possibility that life is eating the methane instead of having methanogens? You have methanotrophs on on Enceladus.
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I guess yeah. Ooh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> it'd probably be tough because you need something to react with that methane. So you need some kind of oxidant, and oxidants are kind of in in short supply on Enceladus. You need like like oxygen is a great would be a great oxidant. So if you had a supply of oxygen, then yeah, you could, you could eat that methane up, but there wasn't any measurement of oxygen in, in the plumes. We don't think there's a source of it in the ocean. There was, oh, this is another paper we, we read in, in Journal Club back when you were at UW. Um, there was a paper by Christine Ray, I think it was, looking at how you could transport oxygen from the surface that's created by radiolysis basically of water ice that produces oxygen and then if you have kind of slow gradual turnover of ice layers you can eventually get that oxygen down into the ocean so maybe you have a source of oxygen not from somewhere deep within the ocean but from the surface itself and and gradually getting in but i think that's a pretty in pretty short supply so i think it'd be tough to tough to get enough oxygen to reactivate all that methane
0: well, I really look forward to your next uh, piece of work on Enceladus then, exploring this mystery. Um, we'll have to have you back on the podcast again yeah. <laughs> in a few <laughs> Sounds great. So thinking more speculatively now about life on Enceladus, we were just talking about how a single molecule like methane may hint that there's life, but it's definitely not a slam dunk conclusion that there's got to be life and as your work shows there's all sorts of caveats you need to consider in terms of planetary context for that type of measurement so what do you think finding evidence for life on enceladus might look like if there's life there and we are able to find it what will that discovery entail what kinds of probes or instruments will be needed uh, from a future mission
1: do I have a limit on how many different uh, instruments I can put on?
0: <laughs> uh, no, let your imagination run wild.
1: Okay, great. Because um, I think, yeah, that's, that's a key part. I think it's so important to have, you know, it's a big big discussion in a lot of astrobiology recently is uh, having multiple lines of evidence. I think one really cool line of evidence that you could look for for, for life in Enceladus, especially if you're thinking about this sort of methanogenic life, you could look at isotopes of carbon. They're just a couple of slightly different versions of, of carbon molecules, and they're just slightly different weights from each other. So you have carbon-12 and carbon-13. Carbon-12 is a little bit lighter. But when life has the opportunity to consume carbon, it likes the lighter version. It likes to use that. It's just a little bit energetically easier for it to use it in its reactions. So as a result, any products of life that contain carbon tend to be isotopically lighter, tend to have more of that carbon-12. And that's something that's been measured in that methanogenic metabolism is you can compare the carbon isotopes in methane that's produced by them versus the carbon dioxide that they're taking in. And the methane that comes out is isotopically lighter than the carbon dioxide that, that went in. So if you see that kind of isotopic fractionation, we call it a, a difference between the products and the inputs. That could be a pretty good sign that, that life is creating that methane because the abiotic, the non-living sort of versions of that process that even perform the same reaction, they don't create this strong difference uh, in the isotopes. So you could use a mass spectrometer to do some of those measurements. And Cassini had mass spectrometers, but they just didn't have the resolution to do the necessary isotopic measurements to, to look for this. Um, so that that would be from the gases in the plumes. You're not just limited to that. You can look at the little ice grains. So we know they're mostly water ice and there's some salt in them. And they're, we also know there are interesting organic molecules in them. But again, Cassini didn't quite have the resolution to tease out all of what those organics are. So especially the higher mass organics, we have very little information about what's actually there. So just looking for complex organic molecules like amino acids could be very interesting. In particular, chiral distributions of amino acids. So looking for like left-handed versus right-handed versions of amino acids, which both exist. and, And when life produces amino acids, it's a very skewed distribution of handedness. So you could look for that kind of skewed distribution because again, non-living processes that can also create amino acids, they don't, they don't create that same kind of skewed distribution. Um, I guess you can also look for complex molecules in general. Uh, if we're just throwing all the instruments we can, I think uh, you know, look for, look for repeating charges for some kind of DNA-like molecule, not necessarily DNA, but something that serves a similar purpose in transferring information from one generation to another. In the form of some kind of yeah, long molecule with repeating charges. Um, and then finally you could just use a microscope mm-hmm. to uh, take a look at those those little ice grains, and you might have a little, little microbial life form preserved in those in those ice grains, maybe being even protected within that ice grain in those frozen droplets of what was once sea spray. <laughs>
0: Sounds like you want a full sensor sweep of this yeah. tiny icy moon. Um, yes, please. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll vote for Captain Pfeiffer of the yeah. USS Vlad <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to go to Enceladus and figure it all out. No, that that sounds great. And uh, Like you said, the theme is multiple lines of evidence because when you're looking for life, you know, it's very easy to kind of get... Excited about a certain finding, um, and that thing may have a few abiotic explanations that you are want to ignore just because, ooh, wouldn't it be great if it was actually alive? But you really need to have all of these different lines of evidence to right. really check yourself and make sure, oh yeah, that thing uh, is actually consistent with what we think. A living thing should produce, and you named so many great ones isotopes, chirality, complex molecules, charge, the repeating mm. backbone charge of DNA. Um, these are these are all great. I hope you get your wish and uh, a <laughs> spacecraft of your own <laughs> to oh, yeah. make all these.
1: Yeah, and I should say, I mean, I should put in a plug for. The Orbilander mission, I am mean, not involved in this, but I uh, would love to be at some point, but uh, there's, a, there's a mission that's sort of in development that's, um, it was named as like the number two priority for the next big NASA flagship mission. So it's this Enceladus Orbilander concept and it would go and do something kind of similar to Cassini and fly around Enceladus and go through the plumes again, but also land somewhere on the surface and maybe even catch, little snowing, snowing microbes falling back down to the surface. Uh, And it's got a bunch of instruments that could make the measurements that we talked about.
0: Amazing. I can't wait for that to become a reality. Yeah. So icy ocean worlds are such a big part of the modern day astrobiological paradigm that it's easy for people like you and me to forget that just a few decades ago, hardly anyone would have conceived of life buried under an icy moon. To date I don't think there have been any Star Trek episodes centered upon the exploration of an icy ocean world either you know Enceladus or Europa or an exo moon of some kind uh, but we can hardly blame the writers from the 60s or even the 90s for this because they just didn't know that these things really existed But today, they have no excuse, right? Enceladus and Europa are in the news, in people's minds for great places, if not the top places to go looking for life in the solar system. So Lucas, if you could write a Star Trek episode centered upon Mm -hmm. an exo-Enceladus say, what do you think it would be about?
1: My favorite episodes are the ones where the crew is reduced to like very limited information and having to puzzle out some kind of, you know, whether it's an unexplained phenomena or some kind of mystery going on. And I love those episodes where it really feels like kind of like a a detective mystery, but also feels like what it is to do science where you're pulling together these very limited pieces of information and creating hypotheses and, and testing them. So I would love an episode where The crew sort of arrives at Enceladus, or or probably not Enceladus, but a a version, a similar sort of planetary body. But, you know, maybe there's a solar storm or something, and their sensors are all mostly fried, and they're reduced to very basic measurements they can make. But they see this icy moon and see these eruptions coming out. And I guess they have to have a reason to, to want to explore that ocean. So maybe... A member of the crew, maybe a shuttlecraft, has accidentally been like beamed into the ocean. But <laughs> now, I mean, Prime Directive. What they're worried about is, can they mount a rescue mission? Because what if there is life? What if there's even an alien, you know, extraterrestrial civilization in this subsurface ocean? So they don't want to, you know, just go barging in without knowing for sure. So. You know that maybe they have to use their limited information. They can take little samples of these plumes and uh, try and puzzle out whether there's life down there and uh, and whether there's intelligent life, even like looking for signs of a of a civilization like for you know, greenhouse gases or something, or looking for for sewage or something that a, <laughs> a, a subsurface ocean city might be creating.
0: This is a really yeah. interesting concept. I guess for two reasons. Number one is because in your story, you basically need some kind of solar storm to reduce the discovery, let's say, in this case, Mm. to the capabilities of Cassini.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just reducing Uh, it to, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) And then number two, this whole conundrum about can we mount a rescue because if we do, and there is an alien civilization or just an alien biosphere there, we would be disrupting it is very similar to the present day astrobiological conundrum of planetary protection, by which we mean the idea of when we send rovers or in the future, perhaps even astronauts to other worlds, we may contaminate those worlds with microbes from earth And also, if we ever bring something back from those worlds, like, uh, say, the sample return from Mars that NASA is trying to do with the Perseverance rover as the first step, we might bring something back to Earth that may contaminate Earth. So I, I really like where this is going, because your Star Trek episode would explore a modern day astrobiological conundrum.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely like why subconsciously I'm drawn to also the episodes that think about like prime directive and, and that pillar of sort of non-interference with alien life. and yeah
0: I, This is a really hard question, right? And I feel like it's something that we all wrestle with, but I really want to know your take on it now that you've brought it up with your imaginary Star Trek episode based on an excellent <laughs> back to real life now. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> If we did find an alien life form in Enceladus, say we so say we launched the Enceladus orbilander with all of the amazing instruments that you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, just bristling on that probe, and it finds evidence for life through all of, you know, it's got the right isotopes, it's got the right complex molecules, yada yada yada. What do you do then? You know, do you leave it alone and let it do its thing, or? Do you send something to study it further and potentially perturb its environment or even bring it back to Earth for genetic sequencing? How do you wrestle with this conundrum of wanting to understand the amazing discovery that you have just made even more and just letting it be?
1: Yeah. Oh, man. That is the ultimate question. <laughs> I yeah well, I obviously do not have a confident answer to this. Um, hopefully maybe nobody does, but part of it is maybe you weigh what kind of information you can get from a certain measurement or a certain mission versus what like the amount of damage it could potentially do. So if that damage is minimal, like say just passing something through the plumes you're even if there is life coming out in those plumes, you're not interfering with the environment where those whatever life could be thriving which is more likely somewhere down in the ocean so anything that's already coming out in the plumes is kind of already uh you know you're not really interfering with that life cycle most likely you're just sort of scooping up remains of of unlucky microbes that got put on this uh, plume elevator that didn't necessarily want to be but i don't know what the answer is if you're then thinking if you got confirmation and then you're thinking about mounting a a more sort of invasive mission that would go into the ocean, you know, maybe you think you can still do that without interfering, without introducing like contaminating chemicals to to that environment and, you know, accidentally totally upsetting what could be a fragile biosphere down there. Um, I don't even know if you necessarily have enough information to make that that call but you know maybe that's why it's easier to put in the context of star trek where you know it's going to wrap up more or less cleanly at the end of 45 minutes
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean this is just why we need that star trek episode right yeah because this is why science fiction is so important i think to science because it gets us to ask these what if questions before we actually get to them and I hope that some Star Trek writers listening to this and getting all sorts of good ideas from what you've been talking about <laughs> Lucas because it is an actual dilemma that that I'm wrestling with in my mind and that we will maybe need to face in the next couple of decades depending yeah. on what's out there in the solar system, right? So, like I said, we need that episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe it'll yeah, it'll help clarify things in my mind too, yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lucas, for this fascinating discussion, for helping us explore the strange new world that is Enceladus, and to help try to understand whether or not there's life there and explore the possibilities of seeking new life on that world. Um, This has been so much fun for me. And I've just got one last question for you. Where can people find you on the internet if they're interested in learning more about your amazing work?
1: I'm on Twitter. I'm not very active on Twitter, but I'll send out my science stuff when it happens. Um, (laughs) So I do that occasionally. Um, It is at Fife Beyond Earth. So F-I-F-E Beyond Earth, all lowercase, all one word.
0: Very nice. All right. Well, thanks again for spending this time with me, Lucas. Um, It's been a blast.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on here. It's been a lot of fun.
0: A few minutes after we closed down the call, Lucas texted me, saying, Oh man, I should have said, what if the hypothetical Star Trek Enceladus civilization doesn't want to be found? They could be masking their biosignatures, maybe adding something to their emissions or sewage to make it appear like a lifeless moon with plumes. Wow, that opens a whole new can of astrobiological goodness. I mean, the idea that an advanced civilization would purposefully hide itself from its cosmic neighbors. This touches on themes of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, as well as METI messaging those extraterrestrial intelligences, as well as the famous Fermi paradox. I hope one day Lucas's Star Trek episode gets made. Because look, these days, with the big-budget CGI of Discovery and strange new worlds, not to mention the animated powers of Lower Decks and Prodigy, there really is no good reason why Star Trek has not actually explored an icy ocean world like Enceladus. Next time on Strange New Worlds, Star Trek science consultant and Duke University professor Mohammed Noor will be back on the show to help us think outside Earth's box and imagine what alien biology could be like. Until then, see you out there.
1: I, I also uh, i actually should have said this during the episode but your podcast is has, has also a big reason why i got back into star trek because oh, i really? had started i'd listened to like a handful of episodes before i had even started watching discovery um it's just like oh like i keep seeing mike's podcast in his like email signature it's like, oh, I, should, <laughs> I should be checking this out and then uh, i listened to a few episodes and i was like Oh man, they're talking about like this new series discovery. I wish I actually knew what they're talking about here. Uh <laughs> I should I should maybe I should start watching it again. I've listened to I think most of your episodes. So it's oh, uh nice. cool to be cool to be on here.
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh, that means so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks Lucas. Yeah. <laughs>